0: You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode was brought to you by Yes Organics. Passionate about intimate health, serious about sexual pleasure, the Yes Yes company produces natural personal lubricants, vaginal moisturisers and intimate washes. Established in 2003, YES is leading the revolution in ethical intimacy products. YES products are hypoallergenic, certified organic by the Soil Association and made from ethically sourced plant-based ingredients without parabens, glycerin or hormones. This makes them ideal for cancer patients seeking natural relief from vaginal dryness brought on by cancer treatments to restore comfortable sex. Discover their products at yesyesyes.org forward slash breast cancer and use the code yeskate15 to claim 15% off your order. The topic of today's conversation is one that I had the most messages about after the first series, people wanting to have this conversation, wanting to hear people talking about it as a topic, and that topic is sex and cancer. Now, According to Cancer Research UK, every two minutes someone in the UK is diagnosed with cancer. And when it comes to thinking about sex and relationships, I think we should also consider that alongside the patient themselves, there's also a massive impact on partners and lovers of those who are diagnosed with suffering or going through treatment related to cancer. And this is why I invited Brian and Beth from the amazing organisation Sex with Cancer to have this conversation, because they have set something up which is created by people with cancer for people with cancer and sex with cancer is an art project it's a community enterprise and it was launched to tackle the taboo around talking about the impact of cancer and illness on sex lives intimacy sexual functioning and pleasure so brian and beth good morning
1: good morning hello good morning
0: um, so Brian, you are a long time advocate for people living with and beyond cancer. And this kind of comes from your own process of being diagnosed with mm-hmm. testicular cancer, age 20, but also that you've run kind of theatre projects all around the world about the the subject of illness. And so I suppose taking your own personal experiences to a more public platform.
1: Yeah, I, I started writing. Uh, I, I walked home from the doctor's office when I was 20 years old and just started writing, started taking notes about what it was like to undergo a diagnosis because it felt to me like, it kind of felt like a... Uh, someone keeping a travel log, or like flying into outer space and taking notes for a new world that they had never seen before. That was what it felt like. So that was when I was 20. I wrote about my own experience about illness with men for many years. Um, and then though my body didn't have cancer anymore, I started working with other people with cancer uh, for a very long time. And so I've created a lot of projects with people throughout uh, the US and Canada where I was living at the time Then I've than in the UK, uh, Belgium, Japan, etc., cetera, um, trying to particularly highlight marginalized stories of experiences uh, with cancer, um, things that are kind of not inside of that kind of inspiring cancer story. Mm-hmm um you know the thing that's like good for a fundraiser or good for a public campaign and one of the big things that came up always was about sex i also happened to be diagnosed with cancer about three months after kind of publicly identifying as queer for the first time. So I was always being dogged by those questions about, oh, you know, you come out as queer. Three months later, you have cancer literally in your genitals. It felt like some kind of cosmic signal, like I wasn't maybe making the right choice. Um, But of course, I tried to address these questions over the years. And so sex with cancer has always been an interest and has got me meeting a lot of really exciting people. And we started this Sex with Cancer project that launches, yeah, right around now.
0: Amazing. And I know that you guys are kind of aiming to develop like a permanent Mm -hmm. resource for where people can get information, but also practical solutions and products. Um, And the whole point being breaking away from shame. And Beth, I know this is something that you as a specialist nurse for young people with cancer feel really really strongly about and you described it to me as kind of talking about the nitty gritty side of this and kind of really answering and working with people on the questions of the practicalities of how people can have sex when they have cancer or have sex when they're having chemo and what that looks like
2: yeah absolutely and You know, I think it's really important to have these conversations um, with young people on an individual basis. Um, And it's just about, you know, ensuring that we're informing them about the information that they need to know about to keep them safe in their sexual relationships. And it is a taboo subject, unfortunately. um, And, you know, it's often very poorly addressed. So yeah, it's something that I do feel passionate about and I've done a lot of work around and it's something, you know, that I'm a real advocate for is talking to um to you know to people about their sexual relationships and making sure that they have the information that they need.
0: And I suppose the reality is without the information that people need, they might actually be doing things which are having a negative impact on their health or their well-being, or opening themselves up to a risk of infection which might be higher if they're kind of in a chemo process or and I I suppose that this feels like such a gap around this subject
2: um yeah it's it's one of those things that because because it's a as I said it's a taboo subject sometimes people don't talk about it um and it's it's, it's sad, really, in some ways, because sometimes people with cancer put trust in the healthcare professionals and think, you know, if something's important enough, you know, we will discuss it with them. And then conversely, sometimes as healthcare professionals, we think, oh, you know, if, if a patient wants to know about it, they'll ask us. Um, and therefore, you know, unfortunately, these conversations don't happen. But as you say, there are things that it's really important that they know about in order to keep them safe. So, so for example, you know, talking about anal sex, you know, when they're having treatment, um, their immune system is is a lot sort of lower. Um so there's certain activities that could potentially be, you know, quite risky if they were to do them at, at certain times. And so it is important to have these conversations um so that they can make an informed choice and so that they're, they're aware, of, you know, of the safety implications as well as anything else.
0: Mm, yeah. And I think that informed choices, that is something I talk about as a psychosexual therapist all the time, you know, kind of one of my, I suppose, like core pillars of my job is helping people to make informed decisions or informed choices about their sexual wellness, their sexual well-being. And I guess I wanted to ask kind of both of you, why do we think that there is, sex in itself is, you know, such a taboo, such a stigma, but why do we think that it's even bigger when it comes to sex and ill health or sex and illness or sex and cancer because I guess one of the things that I've spoken to um, people at places like the Eve Appeal about is that often patients think do you know what my doctor has done so much for me or we're focusing on just getting me back to a place of better that we can't really have discussions beyond that or I don't want to ask questions about sex it feels a bit frivolous or a bit kind of um unimportant when I have got through this whole process and I'm surviving, you know i'm have got my health back
1: absolutely. But
0: why do we think that yeah. the subject of sex and kind of ill health or sex and um illness or sex and cancer is so much more of a no go area
1: can i can I venture a guess i think I think that mm. cancer uh people in in the world of cancer have gotten really comfortable with. Uh, fundraisers and inspiration and survivorship. These are things that across kind of disability um and other illness contexts, we've kind of gotten rid of. We, you know, people inside of the disability kind of justice community are thinking like, oh, I don't need to be a super survivor. I just need rights and dignified, you know, access to the healthcare that I need, et cetera. But I think that in the world of cancer, people are still like very comfortable. Um, with fundraisers and kind of themes of inspiration and survivorship, and we need to, like, raise money, we need to bake for cancer, we need to walk for cancer, we need to do all these things. And I think the more that we do that, which, of course, has a, a positive kind of knock-on effect for how cancer is fundraised for, how research is fundraised for, et cetera, but it has, like, a negative knock-on effect on how people feel comfortable talking about things because they really do feel like, their doctors are their saviors and their nurses are their saviors. And of course, if you're not comfortable about talking about sex with your friends, or if you're not talking about it all the time, you're definitely not going to talk to your medical saviors about those things. So I think there's a real chilling effect that happens. I also think that we know that NHS services are already overrun and people do feel the pressures of time and space. Doctors, nurses, patients, all are feeling those. So they sometimes think that it is an alternative. It's like the additional other thing uh, that they might not have time to talk about or they, you know, they don't have the confidence to talk about it. I um, mean, it, it like kind of slips by because they think, oh, I don't need it right now because I'm just being diagnosed. and I'm just having um, things. I'm just having a treatment course set up. So I don't need to talk about sex right now. But then we don't quite know when in the conversation it should happen. The other thing that I would say about it mm-hmm. is that cancer has really changed radically in the last 20 years, From people either living or dying with cancer, you have a lot of people who are on long-term treatment courses, um, which have long-term sexual health effects. So uh, people who might might experience vaginal dryness, if they're on tamoxifen, might experience that for 20 years, if they're on tamoxifen, which is very different than if you're going to be on a treatment course for a month, three months, six months. You might say, I can deal with it for this amount of time. I won't talk about it now. But people are saying, you know what, it's a permanent issue. I do need some support around it. So I think in part, it's like kind of this give and take between the worlds that surround cancer and then the medical aspects of cancer itself.
0: Absolutely. And use the word there, confidence. And I guess um, a huge part of this is confidence on both the side of medical professionals and patients. And I guess, Beth, I suppose from your position as a medical professional, you're putting the subject out there first so that your patients know that they can talk about it with you. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think, I mean, I believe that sexual healthcare should be an integral part of the holistic care that we're providing for people Mm. with cancer. But, you know, unfortunately, we know know that from numerous studies, as well as, you know, anecdotal experience, that unfortunately we aren't doing well at meeting their needs. Um, And and as you say, often I think the priority is around starting treatment, focusing on all of what that entails, such as the side effects and, you know, all of the serious issues that that are going on. Um, So that's kind of often, you know, we tend to focus on 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 those things because because that absolutely has to be done. You have to start treatment, then you have to manage everything that, that comes with that. Um, but I think that a lot of it as well, as you say, is down to the healthcare professional and assumptions they make. So as I said, you know, sometimes they think that the patient, if the patient doesn't bring it up, therefore that they, they don't want to know about it um and Mm. as you mentioned a lack of confidence and I think that that is actually one of the key things that's come out again and again um when you read the studies that have been done um a lot of the time healthcare professionals are saying that they don't feel confident in talking about sex they don't feel that they have the knowledge to deal with specific problems or issues that come up and because of that they often then don't um don't you know initiate those conversations Mm. um you know so it's
0: so they avoid them, so it kind of carries on the avoidance
2: exactly, and then you know, on top of that, um, we've got a, sort of an impeding healthcare system infrastructure where sometimes things are just not easy, are they? so you know making referrals yeah. to the appropriate people and things like that it's it's you know it's not always easily done.
1: The thing is, there is very good conversation about fertility. there's very good conversations mm. about fertility egg egg freezing sperm freezing etc and that, that almost and i'm just thinking to the other podcasts of yours that i've listened to that like there is something about the medics is good treatment of sex when it pertains to fertility, that kind of even highlights even more how bad we are talking about sex and pleasure, which just kind of mirrors the same kind of conservatism that we see inside of society. We can talk about sex and semen and vaginas if it's about ultimately having a baby, making a nuclear family, and being in a mode that we understand. But it's like the moment that one wants to talk about pleasure or intimacy, Mm. it's a totally different world. And I would really say that Beth, um, and there are a handful of like great professionals who are doing great work, but they are often kind of the the exceptions that prove the rules, that like there are the great Mm. Beths uh, in the world who are happy to talk to their um, patients and the people they care for about sex and fertility and pleasure and all of those things. But really, it's just there's just such a lack of confidence elsewhere. And that weird dance of is it the right time? Do they want to talk about it? What presumptions am I making about them, etc?
0: I suppose what you're saying is we're not having holistic conversations. We're kind of, we can talk about some bits, but not others. And obviously, fertility for some people might not be an important part of their treatment, but pleasure or feeling connected with their partner might be. And so I suppose it, Is about kind of sounding that out on an individual basis but I guess something I was thinking when you were talking is does this inability or kind of inability to or often ignored kind of part of these conversations mean that in terms of cancer kind of diagnosis and treatment that often people with cancer can feel quite desexualized because there's numerous parts to this but we know that obviously there's a kind of physical also emotional but also practical element but for example lots of people feel that their relationships change because their partner might take on a more carer role and actually that can have a big impact on their sex lives and their intimacy but with it not being included in the conversation that in a way it creates a block around that
1: absolutely absolutely Beth, you can correct me if I'm wrong on these, but I think you have it from both angles. So you have that, like, legitimately when you're undergoing cancer treatment, many treatments will kind of result in a loss of libido or, you know, tiredness, etc. So there's both a physical effect, but then there's also the emotional effect that you're living with, that which is a major change in life, which might not make you super horny. But also people start treating you with kid gloves, and they start caring for mm-hmm. you. And it's it's both romantic and sexual partners as much as it is family, friends. People get left out of conversations when they have cancer that are about, like, the, the fun things that we're doing. Because people don't want to, you know, brag about them with someone who's going through a hard treatment. But, like, those are the kind of conversations that ultimately would help someone feel sexualized, empowered in their own worlds. But I think without those, suddenly everyone's cheating you with kid gloves. They don't want to upset you in any way. And that can have a very desexualizing effect. So there's both an emotional aspect that sits on top of the physical, physical aspect, which is a very real change in amount of desire. Uh, that happens when someone goes through serious, you know, medical treatment.
0: And I suppose also just a change in identity. I mean, I'm sure Beth, this must be mm. a huge part of what you're talking about with the people that you're kind of working with as well, is that idea of like how I see myself?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, the whole sort of thing about body image, um, because of course that can be linked to feelings of self self worth. Um and body image concerns are different for, for every everybody, but yeah, it's really difficult when you, when you see you're, you're undergoing this toxic treatment sometimes and it can, you know, cause all these side effects, can make you feel so tired and sick. Um, sometimes you're often too worried about the cancer itself to think about having sex. Sometimes you're scared of having pain, um, you know, changes in hormone levels after certain treatments um, and also, like you say, a loss of confidence and self-esteem because um, sometimes the treatment really does change the way you look, you know. Um, I mean, hair, hair loss for one thing, often you get skin changes, nail changes. I mean, for, for the girls, I mean, often they get really traumatised by losing their eyelashes and eyebrows. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it, it can be very difficult. So, I mean, I would say the emotional effects of, yeah. of, of that can, can be, you know, hugely significant.
1: And the changes happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. Also, it's not like... I mean, people deal with, you know, aging bodies that, you know, bodies that change kind of slowly over time. But I remember having cancer and one day I had hair and the next day I had no hair. And you have a surgery that you have to... You have to go into the doctor and you have to have a surgery within two weeks' time. And that... It's the it's the quick change of it that I think adds to that mm-hmm. difficulty. And also, like steroids can make your you know gain weight or you know and your your face can kind of blow up and then you can lose weight very rapidly so there's something that on top of everything that Beth said it's like the speed of that nice. is also really i i think even more difficult for people to deal with
0: oh, yeah. and you think that also difficult to them for them to deal with but also difficult for partners to deal with because i imagine and um, you know from people i've worked with there's partners are very scared about causing more pain or more hurt or damage. And so there's a there's also the flip side of it, which is the patient and also the patient's partner
2: yes it's you know really really difficult the amount of conversations that i've had with people about how to sort of start a conversation with either their sort of current partner or you know if they're thinking about starting a sexual or romantic relationship it can be so scary um worrying about whether you know whether someone finds you attractive you know at what point do you tell somebody that you've got diagnosed with cancer and and the effects that that might have on your body um it, it is very difficult and, and also the other thing that a lot of young people worry about is um, because they feel that their appearance has changed so much, much and, and, and they don't feel that, that, that they look sort of sexually attractive to their partner but often they don't want to discuss it with their partner because they're worried that their partner will feel sorry for them um, and it'll be mm-hmm. kind of like a sympathy thing so, so that they're, they're worried that their partner won't actually be honest and say actually I don't find you attractive anymore um but instead they might say oh you know you've got cancer so you know well not that they will say that but that that's what they might think you know oh my partner's got cancer I, I have to be nice to her and so it's you know it's very very mm. difficult
0: so that they often feel their partners can't be honest about what's going on
2: yeah it's just, I think it's just something that a lot of them think about, that they're they're worried that, that their partner, um, for example, if their treatment goes on for, you know, a sustained amount of time, because sometimes these treatments can go on for years. Um, and I've had people say to me, do you know what, Beth, I really, I really don't think that they're into me anymore. I think that they just want to end the relationship, but I don't think they will because that, because they feel sorry for me because I've got cancer. Um and, it, you know, it's really difficult and, you know, I encourage them to try and discuss these things with their partners, but, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Mm.
0: How can people discuss this stuff with their partners? Like, how can we, you know, if there's one thing that, well, I hope, you know, there'll be more than one thing that people take away from this, but if there's one thing that we can say to people that will help them to start that conversation, do we know what that is?
1: I... I might venture a guess that's saying what would feel good to you right now. I think the word sex mm. is so tied still. Even if the the the, the queer that we get, the more feminist that we get, it's still that the word sex for so many people is still tied to a very heteronormative understanding that sex is, you know, penetrative, vaginal sex that depends on an erect penis, et cetera. And actually, those are the things that are going to be affected if you have an image in your head of sex looks like exactly one thing and we're tying all Mm -hmm. of our emotions to without this, we cannot experience any pleasure. (laughs) That is just a losing Mm -hmm. battle. Uh, So one of the other steering group members Mm -hmm. that we work with with sex with cancer is a man named Elvin, and he does a lot of great work around advocacy with men with prostate cancer, who, of course, will experience erectile dysfunction often for um, up to two years after the surgery. And if you are a heterosexual man in your, you know, that has lived for 20 or 30 years with the definition of sex being this one thing that is about an erection and a, you know, and penetration but your body can't do that and you tie all of your emotions to that you're only going to be disappointed mm-hmm. or similarly if you're a woman who's yeah, experiencing incredible vaginal dryness or uh, or pain in certain positions but you tie yourself to like this is the only thing that's meaningful to us in a very kind of conservative traditional way that is not anyone's fault for having but is there but i think if we could start the conversation about what would be pleasurable right now what might feel good right now because the answer might be a hug it might be a tickle it might be a hand job it might be a blow job it might be actually I don't want you to lie on top of me right now I would rather you lie to the side of me because your your weight on top of Mm. me is feeling bad so it's like I think for me that conversation about what would feel good what could we do in a very positive sense what can we do given the limitations of our body that are either physical or emotional or spiritual, given those limitations, what would feel good right now? And instead of saying, we just need to get back to do, 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 like some, you know, teenage boy's definition of sex, for a lot of people hasn't changed, really.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think, what I was thinking there when you were speaking is it's a bit like working around a roadblock, isn't it? It's like, how do we work around this how do we find another way around how do we kind of change the course um and that that opens up a whole world of possibilities
2: yeah and of course because it's not all just like as brian said it's not just about sex i mean intimacy is so important and sometimes you know, having an open dialogue with your partner and having them understand you, where you feel like you understand each other and just having hugs and kisses, um, you know, that that can actually be really special as well. Mm.
0: And I suppose there's that sense of cancer kind of putting such a huge barrier between people. And, you know, what I don't want to do is just focus on people in relationships here, but also people who are single, it might feel like it hurts a huge barrier between them and potential partners and them and dating or them and their relationship with their body that impacts masturbation or self-pleasure or um but there's it feels like how do we take some of those barriers down and I guess finding out what works for you for where you are now because understanding that it might also change is a big part of it because I think for me Linking, Brian, to what you were just saying is we seem to have such a fixed idea of sex. But actually, when we're talking about sex with cancer, it feels even more important than usual to create a kind of flexible or fluid understanding of what it means to be sexual or what it means to be a sexual person or understanding our sexuality.
1: Absolutely. Which I which I think is the reason why queer people, feminists, um, HIV activists, and disability activists are really leading these conversations because, like, they're always people that are underserved by the conservatism around what sex is because they're always, like, looking for new ways, new, new you know, ways to think not just about how we fuck, but really how we, as Beth said, like, allow sex, pleasure, desire to be part of our holistic understanding of ourselves um, and, and those groups of people have done it better and more um, than kind of those who, who fit the norm. Everyone who's had to navigate a conversation around sex and their body is is like one step ahead of the game. I found that when I was performing a lot of my work when I was younger about my own body and and having difficulties with my own body or challenging my own body, I found it very hard to get understood by a lot of people. But I found a huge um, appreciation for my work amongst trans audiences. And I think the reason why was because... the the difference of cancer, the cancer and transness are very different experiences, but the experience of having to have a dialogue with one's body about change, Mm. about how they wish for that change to be perceived by others felt very relevant for my work with cancer. And that just, it felt like I have to have a very simple conversation with people about my scars, my body, what it does, what it doesn't do. And the sooner we can have that conversation, the more we can just get on with pleasure. I'll just think for just one quick second, I did a project with a, a Belgian woman a number of years ago, about five or six years ago, Vera. Gorgeous, gorgeous woman who had had a divorce from her collegehood sweetheart, from her high school sweetheart, when she was in her mid fifties. And she she said, you know, I've never actually been on a date. Never been on a date. Uh, Because I married a man when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, whatever. And I don't know how to enter the world dating with someone to talk about my body that now has scars. And also, I have a body that probably will have a recurrence of cancer again. I don't know how to have those conversations. So what we did was we built her as an art project, uh, online dating profile that put her cancer diagnosis into every question so that it was unavoidable for her to have that as a conversation with whatever man uh, she was going out with. And it was was really amazing because it kind of forced her to have that conversation that she was nervous about, whether it would come two hours into the date or two weeks into a relationship, and kind of foregrounded that question being asked. And just proud to say she's been together with a man that she met for the five years since that happened. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that work.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love that and um, and I think dating is something that I wanted to talk about as well and um, I guess um, you know Beth I know you're specialising in working with kind of young people so I imagine that might be something that kind of questions that come up around that quite a lot but how do we kind of help people to feel empowered about when they're dating or know kind of how to communicate about this or is it that people kind of have to work it out for themselves and I think but what guidance can we give them to enable them to feel empowered to do that because I suppose as you just said there's people who are currently in treatment or have currently had diagnosis or people who have had previous diagnosis but are currently um kind of okay but are worried that their chances of recurrence are higher so
2: how how do people
0: navigate that
2: yeah it's interesting because you know everyone is so different and some people after after a cancer diagnosis they just want to kind of hide away in a shell not even think about dating and just kind of their main focus is to get through that treatment and they don't even kind of want to think about anything else until it's almost like that's that's their end goal Um, and then once that's that's achieved then they can start thinking about other things and and that and and I do see that a lot actually um but then you know there are other people that um that do go out on dates while they're on treatment and you know I've had many conversations with young people because one of the questions is you know at what point do I tell the person I'm going on a date with that I've got cancer um because sometimes if they're having treatment you know they may all or may not have any hair um so sometimes it's it's quite clear that they're undergoing you know certain types of treatment but if they're if they've just had surgery or i don't know radiotherapy for example sometimes there's no sort of outward tell if you like um so yeah and i think i think it's different for everybody and what works for some people doesn't doesn't work for others i mean i i mean i would always encourage people to have an open dialogue um not necessarily you don't have to tell people like on on a first date because you know it's difficult because you might meet somebody and you might not click with them anyway so um it's about kind of what makes them them feel comfortable really
0: and I remember someone saying to me that it was a sense of you know just wanting to kind of like push the fuck it button and try everything and put themselves out there and experience everything because they had had a threat to life and what that meant was that they wanted to go out and experience everything they felt they were holding back from experiencing before so I suppose there's also the flip side of it which is I don't want to let this hold me back or I want to experience everything or I want to really put myself out there but obviously um the other side of that Beth as you said is that kind of hiding away or like protective defensive um feeling and something you know it makes me I can feel myself um being a bit emotional, even as I say it, I remember someone once saying to me, like, I feel like this makes me less lovable. Like I'm less able to date or people won't want to date me. And that is, you know, so clearly not true, but is a feeling that people have.
1: I mean, it's it's not wholly untrue. I mean, Kate, you know, the thing is, people are scared away by a cancer diagnosis and people are not necessarily turned on by X Y the thing you know like stomas do scare people away and so so i do think it's important to say you know i believe everybody is beautiful and there's there are people that want to have sex with everyone but of course people are hesitant and cautious for an appropriate reason we live in a world of judgmental assholes mostly that um that might not be as appreciative, or they might say, You know what? Actually, I don't want to take this on right now. I can't take this on. That's very, very real. Mm-hmm. Um, my so and, and so it is important to say that I, I think, um, I, I'm reminded of uh Gia, who was on our steering group and was one of my closest friends for 20 years, who passed away uh just in December, mm-hmm. and she always talked about. Number one, how it was, she was always annoyed that as a cancer patient, she never showed any outward signs. She didn't lose her hair. She didn't have major scarring. And actually, at some points, it would have been easier so that she could have those conversations because it always felt like she had to reveal a secret. If you've, if you've mm. lost your hair, you, you, you go from being skinny to being bloated. You, it's easier. It's almost easier to have a conversation because, right, it's the elephant in the room and we, we all see it.
2: I was just going to sort of add to that, um, you know, about what you were saying, that sometimes people just kind of want to go out and, and do all these things and experience all these things. And that's something that I do see a lot in, you know, particularly with young people, um, that often they can sort of participate in in risky behaviours. Mm. Um, and, and that's something, you know, that that I do discuss a lot with them and sort of counsel them about, you know, if you're going to to go ahead and do you know x y and z that's fine but i you know my job is just to make sure that you're well informed that you know what you're doing and then whatever you do you have the right information to make sure that you're safe um in doing those things um so, so, so that that's something that that i would talk to them about and when
0: you say that you mean in terms of kind of sexual kind of um like stis and things like contraception and i suppose you know lots of um things like that are hormonal and obviously lots of cancers impact hormones and I suppose there's but also the practicalities of having sex safely.
2: Yeah absolutely Um, so because obviously they're at greater risk from um, infections um, because their their immune system is lowered so of course, infections includes um, sexually transmitted infections. Um, they also have um, a greater um, susceptibility um, physiologically to STIs um, that can actually go on to cause further damage than 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 somebody that isn't um, immunocompromised. Um, so it's kind of being aware of those things. So you know, teaching them about you know what they need to know about to practice safe sex. Um, as you mentioned, um, absolutely, they must not get pregnant or. or 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 make anybody pregnant because, um, you know, when you're receiving chemotherapy, that can cause, um, you know, potential abnormalities in in any unborn baby. So it's really important that they understand that. Um, Things like, you know, having oral sex. If they're having um, chemotherapy, um, you know there isn't specific research that tells us exactly how long that the chemotherapy stays within our bodily fluids. But, you know, so we usually sort of say to avoid oral sex um, for five days after chemotherapy. um, Because, you know, for example, if you're a guy and you, you come in somebody's mouth, then essentially they're getting, you know, a a minute dose of chemotherapy. So it's things like that, that that they need to be aware of. Um, Also, you know, advising them about, you know, if if they or their partner has cold sores or genital herpes, um, you know, they have to be aware of of those sorts of things. Um, Also, you know, simple things like um, if either them or their partner has thrush, which you know we all know is 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 a very common thing um just but just talking to them about that if they have thrush i mean the most common thing would be to go out to the chemist and buy like a dose of fluconazole um but i try and keep the dialogue open with people about that because so for example you, you can't have fluconazole within a couple of days of having certain chemotherapy drugs because um it increases the the toxicity of the chemotherapy drugs so um you know so mm. it, it's kind of important that that they know things like that because if no one has that conversation with them it's not the kind of thing that young people you know if they're coming into hospital they aren't going to sort of say oh by the way I had thrush yesterday and I went to the chemist and I took some fluconazole because you know yeah. it's, it's not something that they think that they need to share so that therefore they don't mm. um so yeah so I, you know it's all of those types of things
0: I mean they all sound like really important yeah. points <laughs> to me like really kind of um, big things and you know you just taught me quite a lot of things there I'm I think I'm going to kind of hold all of that in my um, kind of memory bank for future conversations about this kind of stuff because I think that these these are the practicalities and I guess Brian you earlier kind of said about things like colostomy bags Um, you've mentioned vaginal dryness erectile dysfunction obviously pain and I know that We've got some cancers which are kind of more directly linked to sexual and relationship difficulties. So I've spoken to people at the Eve Appeal about things like cervical cancer. Um, we've got testicular cancer, breast cancers, prostate cancers, just to name a few, you know, direct treatments that happen kind of in the pelvic area, but also that impact hormones. And But we are talking across the board about cancers here. We're not just talking about these kind of more specifically like pelvic or hormone kind of affected or you know directly um, genital focused cancers, we are talking about cancer as a much wider
1: subject. Absolutely. And and for me the, the reason why is because the moment that you hear the word cancer in relation to yourself, you are diagnosed with cancer, your life your life shifts. Your life shifts um regardless emotionally, spiritually uh, we we know that that, ha- psychologically, we know that that happens. Some people are going to have real direct um, questions about their genitals and how they work and how they self-lubricate, etc. Others might be about tiredness or effects of, of, of drugs or uh, sus- susceptibility to infection. So all of them, all people that are dealing with cancer need to think about having an open dialogue with their Nurses, with their doctors, with or with just someone that they trust about trying to uh, find a way forward because the world's because all of these things that Beth was talking about STIs, uh, uh, relationships, dating, all all of them it's uh, like people, the big fallacy around cancer is that the world stops when we have cancer and we just deal with cancer. But actually, it doesn't, and we still need to think about STIs, we need to think about bad relationships, we need to think about abuse, we need to think about coercion, we need to think about racism, misogyny, homophobia, all of those things, transphobia, ableism, all of those things don't stop because someone has cancer. So, and in fact, they, they kind of get more severe. All of our shame about talking about sexuality becomes harder when someone is dealing with something difficult, our, our difficulty about talking about a bad relationship, an abusive relationship, become harder when we're under another emotional stress. And cancer is a huge one. So for me, it's always important that, yes, we deal with all of those cancers together because they can all learn from each other. They can all learn from each other, but also they're in relationship to a lot of other things that are happening in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think as you said there you know everything else carries on so we might feel like cancer has kind of taken over everything but it doesn't mean that we still don't have to deal with everything else that's going on and that for me just feels so massive. Guys to kind of round off I suppose this conversation would you be able to tell kind of our listeners what the focus of sex with cancer is you know what you guys are trying to achieve what you want to achieve what people can take away from this conversation and start to kind of put out into the world in their own little ways um and obviously you guys are doing it as a project and as a a permanent resource as a kind of home for this conversation so I'd love you to tell everyone kind of about that but also kind of how we can all as individuals kind of contribute to this as a cause.
1: Sure. Shall shall I start and you add what I've missed Beth? <laughs> okay. Um so Sex with Cancer is the our goal is to be a permanent resource where people can come with their questions and get some kind of answers and support from kind of peer supported solutions that are informed by Great medical professionals, be that nurses, doctors, uh, dieticians, etc., um, and also the participation of sex experts uh, that can really continue to to center questions of pleasure, uh, connection, intimacy, and and because we believe that there are good resources for fertility, we believe that there are good resources elsewhere. But we're just trying to become a home for a positive sex, uh, a sex positive pleasure focused conversation around cancer. Um, So the event that we're doing uh, and and that will be part of the resource is about a sex and cancer conversation competency certification, (laughs) uh, which is because, as you said, Kate, there are so many different kinds of cancers and they all will affect people in different ways. The number one thing that we're trying to impress upon people is about breaking down questions of shame, embarrassment, or unworthiness, thinking that I'm not worthy to have a conversation with my doctors about this question. So in some ways, people just reading the name Sex with Cancer, seeing it on your podcast, seeing it out in our press releases, is kind of doing the work. I think it'll embolden people to say, oh, yeah, I should think about these things going together because that is really important to me. And it's part of my holistic health. So I think that that's what we're trying to do. The long-term vision is to have this resource, that we have kind of free solutions, some paid solutions. We know that people need lubes if they're dry, or they need toys to to experiment with uh, if they have erectile dysfunction. They're not used to anything but, you know, penetrative sex that's now an impossibility. We want to provide people with some new perspectives on what might be the world's beyond the body that they knew previously or their understanding of sex and sexuality that they knew previously. And then simultaneously, we're looking to try to embolden uh, healthcare professionals and medical professionals uh, with confidence to talk about sex with cancer, to share ideas and to be a place that they can do that. So that's a kind of a two-pronged approach that we're going for. Uh, But you'll see on our website, the, the thing that takes people through their sex and cancer conversation competency certificate, which is a bit tongue in cheek, but also just gets us to kind of practice what it means to have difficult conversations and even get have words that are hard to say, get them starting to come out of our mouth. So that's really, that's the goal with sex with cancer. Did I miss anything, Beth?
2: No, I don't think so. And I think that's, you know, it, I'm so excited to be part of this project because I remember having a conversation uh, with you, Brian, many years ago saying how frustrated I was that, that you know, all of these things that, that sex with cancer combines, you, you just can't get anywhere else. You, you can't get it within the NHS, um, you know. And that's why this is so exciting because um, it's kind of bringing everything together and providing a resource that's, you know, so desperately needed.
0: And I think it's super, super important. And I mean, can anyone do the competencies? Yes. I mean, I think I'm definitely going to go ahead and do it. I I, I'm sure you're competent
1: As a well-respected uh, sexual health therapist, I, I'm sure you're competent, but hopefully it's also meant to be a little bit of fun. It's meant to kind of, Ah, uh, be imaginative about our bodies and and the pleasure that we experience. So, um, hopefully, uh, it will inspire people to have difficult or uncomfortable conversations. And I also don't want to stigmatize. There are plenty of people that are happy and free to talk about sex. People that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure are are used to it. So we also want to create spaces where like-minded people who are interested in pleasure-focused, sex-positive kind of beings can also have their perspectives and insights really celebrated because they are the bold Mm. ones that we need to push the conversation forward.
0: Mm. And I think, you know, just I'm sure anyone who's listened to my podcast before is kind of bored of me banging on about how it's all about Mm. communication. But I think even just the talking about it bit and, you know, is it that one of us has a friend going through chemo and they need us as a friend to ask, you know, how is this affecting your relationship or how is this affecting your sex life or how are you guys doing as Mm. a couple or... How are you feeling about potentially dating again or, um, you know, managing all of that stuff? And I suppose it feels like this is all about starting to kind of open the conversation up in whatever way it feels comfortable for us all to do that. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, guys, thank you so, so much for your time. I mean, I feel like I always take away so much from these conversations, but this was one I was so excited about having. And, you know, as I said to you, um, the one that most people got in touch with me to ask if it could be hosted. And I'm thrilled to have done it with sex with cancer. You know, I'm a huge yes. fan. Mm-hmm. Um, please tell everyone where they can find out about what you guys are up to, um, and learn more.
1: Sexwithcancer.com. Keep it simple. Sex with <laughs> cancer on all socials. That's where we'll be. Um, surprisingly no one had, um, captured that web address yet. Um, I had originally called it, uh, June Lynn and I, uh, the other co-founder, we started by calling it Fucking Cancer, and it was going to be fuckingcancer.com, but I think sex with cancer is a little bit more professional, gets a few more professionals on board, but maybe we'll buy the fuckingcancer.com website, and then it can link to it automatically. But for now, sexwithcancer.com. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Amazing guys. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing your time and your knowledge with me and check out Sex with Cancer, everybody. It will be worth it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.